Hello and welcome to the Midwestern Scout, Episode 2. I'm your host, Dustin White. In this episode, we'll be looking at the town of Sims, Custer's Mistress, and a cemetery for the Giants. The Old Red Project, the town of Sims. It once was a booming town. It was home to the largest hotel west of Fargo, and nearly became the Morton County seat. However, today, it lies as a ghost town, forgotten by history, and retaken by nature. It is the town of Sims, North Dakota. As is common with towns throughout North Dakota, the history of Sims is intimately tied to the railroad. Continuing to expand from Mandan in the late 1870s, Northern Pacific surveyors sought out a stopping place where trains could take on water. The surveyors would find such a location in a place known as Sims Valley. There they found fast-running springs, which didn't freeze over during the winter. It was an ideal area, and in 1879, tracks reached the area that would become Sims. Finding a name for the site that actually stuck proved to be difficult. However, it was just the first in a long line of difficulties for the community. Names would differ from Carbon, Baby Mine, and Bly's Mine. Eventually, though, the name of Sims would stick, having been chosen in honor of George Sims, who was a chief clerk in the executive office of the Northern Pacific Railway. The first post office was built in 1880, but it would take another three years for the city of Sims to officially be laid out by the Northern Pacific Railway. In the meantime, the city was already beginning to boom. An abundance of coal, clay, and water were discovered in the area, and it didn't take long for developers to descend on the town. The first coal mine opened in 1879 by Charles W. Thompson. It was a major success, so much so that an additional six mines would begin operations in the area. By 1884, the Northern Pacific Coal Company mine, working five different veins, would have a daily output of 100 tons. Knowing that he could capitalize on his success, Charles quickly began a second venture. Finding water, clay, sand, and coal close together, he made the gamble that the area would be well suited for the manufacturing of bricks. For a moment, that gamble paid off. The brickyard prospered, at least for a short time which allowed Charles to get the opportunity to supply his brick for a number of important constructions, including the first capital building of North Dakota in Bismarck, as well as a courthouse in Mandan. However, it was eventually discovered that the brick coming out of Charles' brickyard was of a low quality that couldn't stand the test of time, at least for the most part. Sims would quickly experience their golden age, spanning the 1880s. More than 500 people were soon employed by just the brickyards and coal mines, and the massive influx of people led to the creation of additional businesses. Taking advantage of not only the raw resources, but also the prosperity that was coming to Sims, the Northern Pacific Coal Company made the decision to build a massive brick hotel in town. Called the Oaks Hotel, the cost to build it was $15,000, and it was the largest hotel west of Fargo. Not only becoming home to much of the workforce that was moving into the area, it also housed the officers of the coal company. Many other buildings would also sprout up. At the town site, Sims would include multiple saloons, a boarding house, a two-room brick house, a parsonage, a church, a bank, which never actually opened, a post office, depot, three stores, a lumber yard, two real estate offices, a Presbyterian church, and a common school. Stretching more than a mile long, the town of Sims would also have homes scattered throughout the area. Sims would grow so fast that two expansions had to be added to the town, Belasta to the north and Ramstown to the south. 
In the middle of the boom, one building that was being planned would continue to stick out for more than a century. The year was 1884, and members of the community made the decision to organize a Sims Scandinavian Evangelical Lutheran congregation. The parsonage was built first, and provided a place for services to initially be held. Eventually, the official church would be constructed, partially from salvaged materials from an abandoned building in Sims. Today, the church still stands and holds a special recognition, the oldest Lutheran church west of the Missouri River. It would also receive a visit from the then First Lady of the United States, Laura Bush. Because of the boom in Sims, the town would become a major shipping point for the Northern Pacific Railroad. A 21-pen stockyard was built west of the depot, where herds of cattle would be driven from as far away as South Dakota. The promise of Sims was so great that it even garnered the attention of the entire county. When the Morton County seat was being voted on, and eventually going to Mandan, it was said that Sims lost by just one vote. After the 1880s, the boom that Sims was experiencing started to turn. Before long, the city would experience a drastic decline. Hard coal was eventually discovered in Montana which led to the railroad to decide that it was time to close its mines in Sims. By the mid-1890s, enough time had also passed to show that the main product of Sims, brick, was of a poor quality and would quickly begin to crumble. As the two largest industries in the area left, so did the workers. With a sharp population decline, businesses were forced to shut their doors and hope that they could make it elsewhere. After the turn of the century, in 1906, the population of Sims had dropped to just 300, Four years later, in 1910, it was only 86. As the years wore on, the decline continued, with additional businesses packing up and leaving. The final death blow occurred on December 3, 1947. That was the day that a line change took place. No longer would the railroad run through the area, and as the final train passed by Sims, the final store, post office, depot, and pump station would also have to make the decision to finalize their operations. The next year, the tracks were taken up. With Sims falling into disrepair, much of the material that had been used for various buildings and structures were repurposed elsewhere. Little by little, nearly all signs that the promising town ever existed disappeared. A few structures did survive though. Along with the church and parsonage, one home has remained standing, the Grey House. The house was built in 1890 by Andrew Anderson. Using local bricks for the construction, it truly was a Sims home. While Andrew missed the initial boom of Sims, he would stick around, along with his family, for a little over a decade. In 1902, though, Andrew's wife, Anne, would pass away. Taking his four children, Andrew would leave Sims. In 1910, Tom Gray and his family moved into the house, where they stayed until 1930. Following Gray's occupation of the place, it served briefly as a residence for school teachers. Today, much of the brick has crumbled, and parts of the building are beginning to fall. Yet it remains a symbol of what once was, a sign that Sims existed. Custer's Mistress George Armstrong Custer is often depicted as a doting husband. Elizabeth, Libby, Custer, was the love of his life, and their marriage seemed as if it was a fairy tale. Custer the big strong hero, Libby the princess by his side. As often is the case, the story isn't quite as it would seem. Largely romanticized by Libby herself, Custer was known to be a womanizer. Having a charming personality and long flowing golden locks, it was said that women would often swoon around him. The attention flattered Custer, and more often than not, he would at least respond by sending the young woman away with a clipping of his hair, and possibly even arrange a personal meeting later on. 
Custer wasn't alone, though. Libby was also said to have thrived on the attention she got from the young, handsome, and intelligent officers she surrounded herself with. With most of them searching for even the slightest hit of feminine recognition, it was said that those young men would fall all over themselves while in her company. One particular fellow who seemed to have gotten into the good graces of Libby was Lieutenant Thomas Weir. While Custer was away, the two had spent a great deal of time together. Partly it was because Custer had asked Weir to be Libby's escort when he was away, but a large part of their closeness was because they enjoyed each other's company. That closeness would lead some to talk, and Captain Frederick Benteen would go on to assert that Libby had had an affair with Weir. Whether or not the testimony of Benteen is historical has been questioned, as he was a bitter enemy of Custer. While Libby's possible affair is a bit speculative, the same can't be said for at least one affair Custer is said to have had. Within American Indian oral history, a number of sources report that Custer had taken a Cheyenne woman named Miotzi as his mistress in the late 1860s, and from that relationship, he would father a son, Yellow Swallow. Whatever Custer may have felt about the relationship, Miotzi considered Custer to be her husband and would remain devoted to him. The two met in 1868, during one of Custer's early military encounters with the Plains Indians, at what would become known as the Washita River Massacre. Miotzi was among the women and children who were taken as prisoners of war. Her captivity lasted four months. It wouldn't be until the spring of 1869, though, that Miotzi would first see Custer. As part of a peace pipe ceremony, Custer would make the promise to the Cheyenne chiefs that he would never attack them again. The two would share Custer's bedroll, and tradition says that she would go on to bear a son, Yellow Swallow. Custer would eventually have to leave and return home, but he didn't do so until he made a promise to Miotzi that he would return for her. For the next seven years, she waited for Custer to return. However, he would never return to Miotzi. Killed at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, he would leave behind two women who considered him to be their husband, both who deeply mourned his passing. Miotzi's mourning was increased by the fact that it was her own tribe and their allies who had been forced to take his life. Likely, it was Custer's relationship with Miotzi that ended up sparing his body from being mutilated after his death. It was said that some Cheyenne women recognized Custer as the father of Yellow Swallow, and out of kinship, spared his body. A Cemetery for the Giants Reading through old newspapers, one can often come across some very interesting stories. For instance, in 1883, the Mandan pioneer printed a story about the discovery of two vast prehistoric cemeteries, where giants were said to have been buried. It didn't take long for that story to spread throughout the entire country, reaching well-respected publications such as the Scientific American, labeled the City of the Dead by various papers. The first cemetery was said to be on the bluffs, near the junction of the Hart and Missouri Rivers. Just east of Fort Lincoln Road, the cemetery was said to cover 100 acres, which was filled with the bones of a giant race. The discovery of the dead nation occurred after an exploration was conducted in the area. After initially discovering the cemetery, half a day was spent exploring the area. After digging a series of little holes into the mounds, it was determined that trenches had been piled full of bodies, both human and animal, and then covered with several feet of earth. According to the Mandan pioneer, in many places, mounds from 8 to 10 feet high, and some of them a 100 feet or more in length, have been thrown up and are filled with bones, broken pottery, vases of various bright colored flints and agates. The pottery especially amazed those present, as it was said to have shown great skill and suggested it was built by a people of a high state of civilization. At the time, only feeble efforts at excavation had been attempted at the site, 
and a systematic exploration was hoped for, as it promised to be a grand field for the student. While an exact reason for the cemetery was not known, it was suggested that it was the result of a grand battle, where thousands of men and horses had fallen. There was hope, though, that one day, investigations would reveal who this dead nation was. The second cemetery only got a brief mention. It was said to have been five miles north of Mandan, on the Bismarck side of the Missouri. Exploration of the area had not yet been conducted. In trying to find out more about the cemeteries, a reporter for the Mandan Pioneer questioned an aged American Indian about what his people knew about the graveyards. His answer, we know nothing about them. They were here before the Red Man. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Midwestern Scout. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it at iTunes and leave us a review. If you'd like to connect with me, go to www.midwesternscout.com or send me an email at editor at midwesternscout.com.